Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks again for tuning in. We've got a great one for you today. Today we are talking to an expert in the mobile economy. And I thought this would be great because I don't know about you, but my phone is essentially my third arm. And so we brought on one of the world's leading experts on how this little phone is continuing to massively disrupt the economy and where that mobile economy is going in the future. Our guest this week is Anindo Ghost. He is a professor at NYU. He's the director of the Masters of Business Analytics program at NYU. And he is a Leonard Stern faculty scholar with an MBA scholarship named after him. Dude has a scholarship named after him. He's been a visiting professor at the Wharton School of Business. In 2014, he was named by Poets and Quants as one of the top 40 professors under 40 worldwide and by Analytics Week as one of the top 200 thought leaders in big data and business analytics. And honestly, the bio keeps going. I just don't want to read anymore. Smart guy, lots of awards, teaches this stuff, knows it inside and out. And of course, he wrote a great new book on the subject called Tap. Unlocking the Mobile Economy. 
What we're talking about in this episode, of course, is the mobile economy and what phones are doing and how we can tap into it, how businesses, entrepreneurs can tap into it, how people are currently utilizing it to understand what you do as a consumer. But let me give you a little preview and some interesting things that we discuss and that Anindo has uncovered in his research. He describes some intriguingly contradictory consumer behavior. So for example, people say they want spontaneity, but they're highly predictable. Most people say they find advertising annoying, but they fear missing out. And of course, we all say we value our privacy, but we'll throw our personal data out anywhere on the phone and use it as currency. But fear not. One of the things Ghost argues is that advertising, for example, when done well via mobile, actually acts as more of a butler than a stalker. So there is good news here. I'll let Anindo do the rest of the talking as we get into his new book, Tap, Unlocking the Mobile Economy. Also, please feel free to reach out to us. We are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. And if you want to be in the know, head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for that newsletter, bottom right-hand corner. But most importantly, if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Next time you're on a jog or at the gym or getting beers with the friend, say, hey, you listen to Smart People Podcast? You should. I love it. All right, that's all I got for you. Here it is, Anindo Ghost. Well, Anindo, first, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Chris. Absolutely. And, and you know, I want to get into your brand new book called Tap, Unlocking the Mobile Economy. But first, you have a really interesting background I was hoping you could share with our listeners. Uh, really, what it is that you do and how you got to this point, what interested you in writing a book about really the mobile economy? Sure, sure. Um, so I am a professor at uh, New York University's Stern School of Business. Um, I spend most of my time here except for a short period of time at the Wharton School in uh, University of Pennsylvania. I essentially, my research interest looks at uh, various issues related to the economics of internet and mobile technologies. And, and that's something that I've been working on for the last, uh, let's see, about 15, 16 years. I essentially teach a course on digital marketing uh, analytics. It's essentially applying uh, business analytics to the domain of digital marketing. And I do a ton of consulting with uh, you know, various companies, not just in the U.S., but also overseas, um, in Germany, in China, South Korea, India, and so on. And then I also have other sort of uh, you know, related uh, expertise, uh, uh, especially in, in the area of litigation um, involving you know, intellectual properties or patent infringements or uh, securities or appraisal cases. I'm often asked by companies to offer expert testimony uh, to, you know, evaluate a case uh, in, in court. So that's uh, mostly what I do um, for a living. And one of the things I'm curious about is when companies call you in to consult, are they asking you essentially how they can better utilize mobile technology to increase their whatever they're trying to increase, right? Their profitability, their reach, et cetera. Is that the typical uh, engagement? Yeah. So quite often, uh, you know, it starts with a conversation about, you know, what's happening today in the digital economy and, um, you know, how can they better leverage and harness the, the data that they have? So oftentimes, you know, the situation is uh, a lot of these companies have some tremendous 
you know, data, both in terms of quality and quantity, but maybe they don't have either resources in-house or even if they do, they're looking for some, you know, ideas to harness that data and, and you know, improve their operations uh, on a variety of fronts. It could be pricing, could be advertising, could be, you know, supply chain, could be just uh, evaluating investments in technology. So um, that's how it starts. And, you know, then from there, uh, given that mobile is all pervasive, it's ubiquitous now, it's, you know, it's almost... A no-brainer that very quickly the conversation shifts to mobile, and uh, I think the you know the question that most companies are curious about is you know how can they essentially um, unlock the power of the mobile economy, and that's sort of you know really what made me start thinking about writing a book on, on this topic. Um, I uh, I was uh, I, in a few years back, it was 2009 or 10. I first uh, you know, like many others, I first heard the phrase that we live in a world of smartphones and <laughs> stupid people. And I was <laughs> amused, very amused by this statement, but also, you know, intellectually intrigued. And, and you know, not so much about, you know, how smartphones would eventually, uh, you know, sort of uh, have an effect on human intelligence, but more so about, like, you know, how, how do consumers actually behave on these devices? And, you know, uh, do they show some fundamental behavioral contradictions? with respect to what they say and how they behave. Um, and so my instincts are basically telling me that a smartphone would have very profound and far-reaching implications. But obviously, you know, as, as a scholar, as a data scientist, I crave for like concrete evidence. Um, and that's why I was compelled to sort of, you know, start thinking more deeply about this question that, uh, you know, could this crystal ball of the mobile, could, could the crystal screen of the mobile phone have the potential to become a crystal ball for businesses? Mm. So that, that's what this is about. What did you do before your interest in specifically mobile? Were you, were you always into technology? Did you get your, you know, undergrad and, and master's and everything in that or how that evolve? Sure, sure. Yeah, so my undergrad was in engineering. Uh, specifically, I looked, I studied uh, electronics and instrumentation. Um, which basically means that, uh, you know, in those, that was a long time back, uh, 19, let's see, about 20 years from now. Um, and, you know, in those days, automation in these heavy engineering like, industries and plants were just about happening. And, you know, um, a lot of the industries were thinking about how to deploy computers and circuits and, and automate some of their machines. And so a lot of my work in engineering was about those things, um, following which I pursued an MBA. My MBA was, I majored in finance and in technology. Um, and then after that, I came to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh for my master's in information technology and a PhD also in the same subject. So mm. that's what's been. Okay, so always on that path. I was just curious because as you talked about the mobile economy, obviously that's something fairly new. I mean, call it, yeah. I don't know, what do, what do you even consider it, the last 10 years? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the smartphone, well, for the first smartphone from Apple, the iPhone 1, right, that came out in uh, 2007, mm -hmm. right? So this year, in fact, is going to be the 10th anniversary of yeah. the iPhone. So, uh, you know, if I just look at smartphones, it's been 10 years already. Um, if you look at mobile phones that include, you know, flip phones or feature phones, and it's another 10 odd years. So it's, you know, it's almost been two decades now. And so what, what is it about this idea of the mobile economy that really is, is so crucial? I mean, I, from your perspective, why focus on this? Right. So um, I think the answer to that is, uh, in my mind at least, very simple, which is the fact that consumers 
are spending more and more time on mobile devices, whether it's smartphones and tablets, and businesses need to be where consumers are, right? So what that means is, you know, in the absence of mobile devices, uh, you know, one of the one of the channels from which we got information, well, you know, we had newspapers and televisions and radio, and we had our regular internet. But what's happening over the last four or five years is that consumer usage about of mobile phones and, and tablets has dramatically increased, which means that we are spending more and more of our time there. Um, whereas we have essentially, you know, reducing our time spent on television and, uh, you know, newspapers and magazines and so on. And so businesses essentially, uh, you know, find it valuable to be present in, in those spaces where consumers are because then you can have a conversation with your consumer, then you can have the attention. And, uh, you know, as of last year, consumers were spending, we people were spending about 25% of our daily, you know, uh, time on these devices. And yet, uh, businesses are only about 12% of their advertisement money on these devices. Uh, so there's a lot of inefficiencies here. And, you know, a, a sort of a big motivation for my writing this book was about, you know, giving companies around the world you know, some um, data-driven evidence that, uh, look, if you're able to invest appropriately in the mobile economy, then you have a lot to gain. I mean, the U.S. alone, the fact that, you know, they're only spending 12% of uh, advertisement money on mobile, whereas consumers are spending 25% of their time, that's that gap, a 13% gap translates to about $25 billion in, you know, monetization potential. And, um, you know, if you include the next five countries in terms of mobile spending, which is basically uh, China, South Korea, Germany, Brazil, and India, that number very quickly goes on from 20 billion plus to, you know, several hundred billion. So there's, you know, there's lots of opportunities for businesses to monetize that. And um, my book essentially is meant to do two things, is give lots of examples of how to do it, but more importantly, better understand the consumer, you know, the consumer psychology, uh, all the contradictions that we display and so on. Let me ask you, given that a lot of people who are buying books these days, even listening to the show, whoever, um, they might not be business owners, they might not be in marketing, they right. are the consumer. What do they get out of it? What is their, you know, from their perspective, why does this matter? Okay, so, you know, absolutely, it's a great question, right? So I think that, you know, my attempt in this book has been to point out, you know, four contradictions, behavioral contradictions that consumers, we actually display. And and the reason I thought it's important is because even though we may be doing this, we're probably not aware of it. And more of my research in the last 10 years across these countries and all these countries that I mentioned, I've actually done some work with companies there. Uh, you know, what is really a stunning in some ways is that uh, consumer behavior is so similar, whether you are in the US or China or Germany or Brazil or India or South Korea, you know, people are fundamentally very, very similar. Um, there's, uh, you know, there, I mean, I expected to find, you know, like cultural differences or differences driven by geography. Uh, and really, I didn't find anything. If anything, what I found was there are generational differences, you know, so the millennials and the gen than Gen Zs and the Gen Ys versus the Gen X and the baby boomers. Those differences exist, but I really didn't find any evidence of, uh, you know, any dramatic differences across geography or across culture. So, um, so my book talks about, you know, four contradictions and, um, you know, and I'll start with the first one. The first one that I found 
amongst people is, you know, we people, we seek spontaneity, um, but we are actually very predictable and we value certainty. Okay. Um, then the another one that I found is that, you know, people find advertising annoying, but they also fear missing out. Another one that I found is people want choices and freedom, but they also get overwhelmed easily. And then the last one, maybe the most interesting one, is that you know people say that they really care about their data privacy, but I've seen more and more you know unequivocal evidence that they are increasingly willing to use their personal data as currency. Okay? Mm. Um, and so I'm happy to elaborate on, on on each of these, but and I thought those four contradictions are are striking and, and they are actually fairly universal. Yeah, let's let's go through these and maybe just pull out a little bit from each one. Um, so sure. the first one that, you know, we um, we want spontaneity, I guess, or yeah. uh, we want to think we are. However, we're highly predictable. Yeah. Why did this realization come from studying the mobile economy or mobile in general? And even more so, uh, what does that predictability look like? Right, right. So, yeah. So let me sort of, you know, give you an example. Right? You know, imagine that, you know, something is disrupting our routine, right? So. Perhaps, you know, um, I get an uh, unexpected afternoon on, off and, you know, which basically means I can go home early and do something truly spontaneous and positive. Okay? But um, when I look at, you know, people's behavior and, and the fact that, you know, mobile is a great, is, is the best source of location data. So when I track or when I look at people's location data, uh, you know, and see, okay, someone gets a Tuesday afternoon off, what is he or she doing? Well, um, instead of the fact that many of us could actually use the chance to go somewhere new or try something new, um, or we could, you know, we could use the time to run um, our usual errands, we don't actually always end up doing that. We would essentially go back, head home, and sit on the couch and, you know, do something, and maybe turn on the television or, or start surfing the computer. Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, you know, a very similar phenomena holds true for shopping. So, you know, we like our favorite apparel stores where we don't have enough uh, time to sample every item. We like to in restaurants, we like to eat in certain places. And, and so this be so even though we can we get an opportunity to really leverage this new window, unexpected window that opened up, turns out that we're actually not really uh, you know, harnessing it or exploiting it, we are essentially ending back at home or in one of our existing spots. I get you. So essentially what we're saying is, although spontaneity might sound great, what the, the mobile aspect allows us to do is really see what people are doing. Where are they going? Yeah. How are they acting? And what right. that has showed us is it's kind of business as usual, just starting perhaps a little earlier when you go home on that Tuesday. That's correct. Yeah. You know, that doesn't really surprise me. I'm going to be honest, because if I get off work, then typically I'm tired and I want to just go sit at home anyways. Yeah, except that I want, you know, if you get up at 6 p.m., sure, I totally get it. But what I'm saying is what we find is that you get up at noon or 1 p.m., you get mm -hmm. the entire afternoon on, and yet you still go back home. Right. <laughs> Right. And, and, you know, so I think the, the question there really is how do businesses convince customers to, you know, uh, take a pause during their day and walk into a store unplanned or make an unplanned visit to a, some, some other institution. Mm. Right. And that's where the power of the mobile economy is, which is basically that if if you if uh, if businesses are able to, you know, see these patterns and predict them in advance, then they can 
communicate an appropriate message to us in the form of an offer or an ad or a coupon that actually makes us uh, digress from our usual routines and induces us to you know, try something new. How much of the ability to do that is actually a waste, though? Like, I worry, I mean, I really worry yeah. about the intrusion of knowing my every move even more about what I'm going to do than I do, and then utilizing it against me almost to, to take money out of my wallet. <laughs> right. No, I, I often get that, uh, you know, this question that you asked, which is uh, exactly the way you phrase, which is, you know, taking money out of my wallet. Mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, uh, here's here's what I see, right? First of all, um, the question is, you know, can, can a company make, twist my arms to make me buy something that I really don't want to buy? I think the answer for that is no, right? So what they can do is essentially, you know, expand our horizon, expand the scope of opportunities, or, uh, you know, essentially expand the choices that we have and give us more information, more choices, and so on. Okay? Um, if And what's really important for a company, and this is something I talk about uh, in the book, is the value of the mobile, the real value of the mobile economy really comes in the form of acting like a concierge or a butler. Uh, but there's a very thin line dividing that versus, you know, acting like a stalker, mm -hmm. right? So I think, you know, going back to your question that, uh, you know, sharing more information or harnessing more data from consumers can be leveraged by businesses to in, in, a, in a very positive way. And in which case they become your helpful concierge or butler. Um, but there's a thin line and it's very quickly you can sort of cross that line and become a stalker. And I also refer to this as a creepy versus cool factor. Right. And what is happening today is the following. Right. So. This might seem astonishing, but companies actually still don't have sufficient you know, information about our preferences. And so what happens is, despite all of this digital data that's you know, out there, uh, we get inundated and bombarded with you know, messages and ads and offers and coupons. And the reason is because, because they don't have enough information or preferences, they're like throwing darts in the air and hoping that one of them will stick. Right? And it becomes a vicious cycle where, you know, the majority of those dots are not relevant. So consumers start getting more frequent and less relevant offers and they start tuning out. Okay? Um, and what what we have done in, in, in some of these projects that I described in the book is essentially address this problem. And it basically boils down to a two-way street where, you know, as consumers share more information about their preferences, Companies can leverage that and reduce the frequency of their offers or messages and increase the relevance of it. Okay. And the vast majority of these case studies I talk about in the book are examples of companies who do so. This week's episode is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Its supportive memory foams create an award-winning sleep service with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Casper offers free shipping and returns to US and Canada, so again, you have nothing to lose. 
With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it's quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. So listen up. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com smart and using the offer code SMART. That's www.casper.com smart and offer code SMART. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. Could you share with us an example of a company that does that really well? And perhaps also if, if you have an example of one that you've seen that's that's pretty creepy, uh, that'd be interesting too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can talk about a few uh, you know, examples. Uh, maybe in, in, in the retail world, it's, it's a good context, right? So let's think about a shopping mall, right? So, you know, a shopping mall or a, or a big department store like Macy's or Bloomingdale or Nordstrom. Now, as you may have seen in the, in the papers recently, a lot of these, you know, brick and mortar retailers, in order to sort of counter the competition from the online giants like Amazon and so on, you know, they are looking at adopting various forms of mobile-related technologies to uh, essentially, you know, come closer to their consumers, right? Uh, whether it's beacons or, or Wi-Fi. Um, these are all new technologies that can be essentially synced up with the smartphone to send a highly relevant or customized offer to a, uh, to a given consumer. Okay. So one of the really exciting projects and, and pretty fascinating uh, project we did was uh, working with a shopping mall that had about 250 individual stores. And uh, the shopping mall also provided Wi-Fi access to its consumers and the Wi-Fi was for free. Okay. But what, what, what was possible through the Wi-Fi was once you're on the Wi-Fi, um, your trajectory inside the shopping mall is essentially an additional data, data point that they can observe about you. So, you know, if you first went to the Tumi store, luggage store, and then from there, Delcy, and then, you know, Samsonite, um, that trajectory of your existing shopping behavior is, is very useful to predict where the fourth or the fifth store you might go to inside that mall. Now, in, in, a, in the e-commerce world, the likes of Amazon and Netflix have been doing this for the past decade or so, right? So in the, in the online space, this is not new. But in the offline world, in the actual physical brick and mortar world, right, nobody's done this before. So this became the first of its studies or first of its projects really across the world where, um, you know, businesses and, consume, businesses and corporations essentially could leverage the trajectory of shoppers in real time and curate the data to send them personalized offers. And when we did that, what we found was the actual propensity to redeem and the actual redemptions both, you know, shot up dramatically instead of, you know, single digit redemptions of ads and offers and coupons, we started getting redemptions in the 20%, 30% range. Uh, and, and I'm talking about, you know, shopping malls that gets like 100,000 people every day. So mm -hmm. when you're getting like a third of them saying, yes, uh, you know, please uh, take my information and send me a relevant offer, uh, you know, that's very promising. It makes sense. Again, it, what it brings me back to is, and, and really I'm just saying this because I want to hear your thoughts on it. The idea of we have to get people's attention. We have to get it in a way that seemingly works for them as in, you know, they're nearby, but really works for us as a company. Um, and we're going to do that via an offer typically, which, yeah. and again, maybe I'm just taking the wrong view here, but it just continues the 
unnecessary consumerism. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need it. I wasn't even going to buy it. But since you know where I am, know where I was and know what I searched for three weeks ago, you can like put it in front of me in a way that I almost have evolved not to be able to resist. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, um, certainly, you know, that might happen to, you know, some people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but here's the thing, right? What I'm saying is uh, you are in a shopping mall and or in a department store in Macy's and you were going to buy that, mm, you know, suit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a given. And what this technology is now letting you, letting companies do is actually reduce your cost because, you know, you're going to buy that, uh, you know, $1,000 suit. But now suddenly you now have this 20% offer in real time, given the fact that you're already in the mall and about to buy the sword, now the price has come down to 800. Sure, right? yeah. That's that's what I'm talking about. And that's why you know where the real potential is, which is, and you're absolutely right. Like, look, if, if the offers were sent to me at a time when either it was not relevant or it induced me to spend extra money that I may not have spent, that's not great. But what if you could just flip the switch and say, no, instead of doing that, I'm going to try and reduce your uh, you know, expenses or, or delight you with surprisingly personalized offers at a time when you're about to buy it anyway. Right. Yeah, I was just thinking about recently, just last Friday, my wife and I were thinking, let's, we want to go out for dinner and let's try somewhere new. And we were like, oh, maybe, right. maybe there's somewhere nearby. Maybe there's a Groupon going on. I don't know. But then that takes a lot of work and planning. And we just went to the place we go often and it's good and whatever, you know, no harm, no foul. So I I see um, that, A, we had a good time, so it worked out fine. But it's possible we could have had a cheaper meal at a nicer place that we've never Mm -hmm. been before. And so it's just that, you know what it is? It's like adding that spice of life back a little bit through technology. I'm just a little oh, like bit of, it. you know, I'm just Love a little it. bit of a Laudite. So I, you know, this stuff really, like to me, I, I cling tight. But I want to go on to um, another one. You, you mentioned the choices versus overwhelm. And that's a topic that I'm pretty fascinated by. We had on the podcast, uh, I can't remember his name now, but talking about, uh, it was Barry Schwartz, I believe, talking about the paradox oh, of choice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually, I quote his book in my book. So in oh. fact, uh, <laughs> there exactly. you go. And yeah, I mean, because yeah. he really coined a lot of this and and that stuck with me. This idea that you go to the grocery store and there's 36 different types of tomato sauce and right. that actually makes it more difficult. So um, tell us a little bit more about uh, your research and, and how it speaks to, you know, our, our choices versus our overwhelm. Yeah. So, you know, one of the really fascinating projects we have done um, a few years back was when we analyzed hotel reservation data from travel search engines like TripAdvisor and Travelocity. And, uh, you know, all of these product search engines, Expedia, Orbitz, everybody is essentially, you know, vying for t- attention and they're, and they're competing uh, for market share. And there's a ton of them. Um, and so what they've been playing around is with this idea that you know, uh, let's say you right now went to one of the search engines to look for a hotel in, I don't know, you went to Denver and you put in your dates and you search for a hotel. And I do the same right here and there as well. In sitting in New York, I'm looking for hotels for in Denver for exactly the same set of dates, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you and I may have, you know, similarity in many preferences, but also maybe there's some very 
you know, unique differences. Uh, maybe I like, you know, Thai uh, cuisine and I want to have, I want to be in a place right next close to the Thai cuisine. Maybe I like nightclub. I want to be in close to downtown with some nightclub and so on. So what we had done was we essentially created these highly personalized recommender systems where based on the consumer's preferences and the set of hotels that will be displayed for John Doe would actually be very different from Jane Doe, even though uh, they are looking for the exact same city with the exact same, you know, dates and, and very similar preferences in terms of, you know, attributes, uh, a five star, you know, within $500 a night and all of that. And what we saw is that that's when we started seeing this paradox of choice that even though people would like to have many choices, but beyond a certain point, there's very strong diminishing returns to choices. And what happens is people just get overwhelmed to a point where they just tune out and not even make a single purchase. Mm. And in the mobile economy, I'm seeing this more and more now in the world of you know apps that act as aggregators of offers. Okay, so think about think about a kayak or a Yelp, um, where essentially when you put in your query, you get to see a bunch of results. Now, what's happening very clearly, and we see this evidence that you don't want to show people too many of these offers or too many of these choices at the same time. Um, you know, sometimes like going beyond four or four, four or five choices, that's like the optimal. Beyond that, people just tune out. Yeah. So that's what that's what I talk about in my book. Yeah. It, it, the example you used, I mean, I travel all the time. And what I've right. realized is there is so much information available, but just booking a flight is now a fairly intense process because exactly. yeah. I have to consider connections i have to consider mm -hmm. weather costs what the client's gonna want what time i have to leave and I, I will say that sites like kayak specifically which i use make it way better but if there was a way to simplify that because it's really stressful and that's not even the job right that's just part of it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no and and I, I think you know there there's some you know one of the things we found out was this notion of you know active personalization versus passive personalization. So one in which you know consumers can have the luxury of you know choosing the extent to which their offers will be personalized mm -hmm. versus the one in which the platform chooses, right? And uh, in in many ways, uh, you know the when, when consumers are given the choice to choose and and make preferences, it actually becomes too overwhelming for them. Whereas, you know, the platform says, okay, I'm going to show you five offers and you've got to trust us. These five are the most relevant for you. Relevant for you. Uh, it makes life easier. Uh, so there's that trade-off as well. Um, yeah. So even though we say that, oh, I really want to make the choice, but when we start making the choices, it turns out to be a much more complex problem. Yeah, I mean, I get that paralysis by analysis. And, uh, and, yeah. and I want to link up what we're talking about now to your final point, which is that idea we say we want privacy, but we're pretty willing yeah. to use our personal data and put that out there. And so for in this example, where we want to help make our smartphones our butlers, we need to give it even more data, right? We need to give it access to our constant location and what we like and dislike and what's going on in our head. And I think that is how we get it to be a butler instead of a stalker. However, we then are sacrificing our privacy. What do you see as the interplay between those two? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, you know, one of the messages that I'm trying to communicate in my book is, um, you know, the average person is not very fully cognizant of the distinction between, uh, you know, 
government use of our data and sort of you know, corporate use or industry use. Okay. So, so what I mean by that is the following. So, you know, from everything that we have seen, whether it's you know the uh, the Edward Snowden, uh, you know, uh, disclosures or the WikiLeaks and thing, and also what happened, uh, you know, two three years back, where uh, you know we know that U.S. intelligence had access to mounds of data held by Google and Yahoo, and all of that went far beyond the court-approved Prism program, which was was described in some of the National Security Agency leaks that came out in 2013. Basically, what was happening is that the you know institution like the NSA were tapping into underwater sea cables between Google and Facebook and Yahoo in the U.S. and Europe, and kind of plucking out consumer data. Okay, and you know when people get to hear about these things, they get very nervous, right? But what I would like people to understand is, let's try to understand you know who who are the bad guys and who are the good guys here. Um, did the companies know? No, you know. None of the people, whether it's Zuckerberg or Eric Schmidt or Marisa May, none of them knew that this was happening, right? So I understand, you know, the government has its reason for this sort of surveillance, but I think for the average person's, you know, fear and apprehension about disclosing or sharing their private data, and then something bad's going to happen, they need to understand, like, you know, what's the worst that can happen with companies? Uh, when they send you, you know, an irrelevant ad, an irrelevant offer versus with the government who can do a lot more. Yeah. And and I mean, that makes sense. But I guess from a consumer perspective, it's more, well, it's two things. One, it's it, the more you give away, the more you can feel manipulated or be manipulated. I think that's yeah, what people no, I, are really worried about, because in our society, the company's job is to make money and they're going to do it. The The one who can market to you better using all the psychology and tips and tricks at its fingertips. Right. So we yeah. are handing over the keys to that kingdom a little bit. Yeah. So I, I absolutely. Right. So the point here is trust, which is, you know, the point that I make in the book about this thin line dividing uh, concierge and butler versus talker is essentially a line of trust. So companies have to, there is no question, they have to earn our trust and they have to keep it. And very very quickly, they can, in a slippery slippery slope, they can gravitate on the wrong side and lose our trust. Uh, But by virtue of the fact that now having, you know, worked with so many different uh, companies in different countries, if they follow a very simple two-step formula of notice and consent, it turns out that they can actually maintain the trust, keep it, and still make a ton of money, right? So what does notice and consent mean? It basically means, you know, you want to notify people if it's your shopping mall and you're using Wi-Fi data to essentially monitor the directory, you have to let these people know, right? So when we work with these shopping malls to do so, we absolutely made it very clear that every person who was signing onto the Wi-Fi knew 100% that the Wi-Fi data is going to be used to curate offers for them. Mm-hmm. And then we have to give them a choice. So it's not just enough to notify them. You also have to give them a choice, which is, look, we're going to do this. Are you good with this? If you're not good with this, that's fine. You know, uh, you can still use the Wi-Fi, but we will not send you an offer. Okay? Mm. Now, when we did this, Take a guess at what percentage of people actually opted in and said, take my data and give me an offer. Ooh, I'd say 81%. 81%. Wow. I was going to say about 60. I'd think more than half. Wow. Yeah. 81%. And and I'm talking about on a daily basis, these malls getting 100,000 people. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's basically 80,000 people on an average on a daily basis saying, yes, I'm willing to share my data. And, but look, 
I'm trusting you with my valuable resource. You have to honor it and keep it. And I think that's where the ball lies. The ball is back in the court of the industry and the company because consumers are willing to do this, but you have to honor and keep their trust. This week's episode is brought to you by NutraBoost. If you've ever found yourself daydreaming during the workday or spending countless hours on small tasks, try NutraBoost. NutraBoost is a top-rated supplement made from nootropics, cognitive-enhancing compounds that, when stacked in the right combination, give some of Silicon Valley's best coders and business people their extra edge. They are 100% safe and, in this case, made from natural and potent cognitive enhancers that will significantly improve your focus, concentration, and memory. So, for all you hustlers, strivers, and thrivers, anyone looking to get the most out of their lives, count on NutraBoost to increase your productivity and give you the competitive edge needed to conquer any challenge. That way, you can have more time in the day to enjoy the important things in life. For a limited time, NutraBoost is offering a free 30-day supply. That's a $60 value, and all you'll have to pay is less than $5 for shipping. Head to NutraBoost.com smart to claim your free trial now while supplies last and before this offer expires. That's TryNutraBoost.com smart. And now back to the episode. And you know what? That's that fear of missing out you were talking about. I mean, if I go to a mall and you say, look, right. if we can use your data, you might save a lot of money. Right. I'm torn, right? Part of me is like, no, you can't have my data. And the other part's going, but what if? Yeah. And so you're really, you're just, you're, you're messing me up here. I don't know. <laughs> I, I still don't know how I feel about it. Just give it a try one time. <laughs> you love it. You know, they will delight you. If they do their job well, which I hope after reading my book, they do. Yeah. They will delight you, surprise you, and they will just make life better for you. Well, you know, I, I do like the idea of the butler. I really like that line. I want to talk a little bit about, you, you talk about nine forces that shape consumer behavior. And yeah. uh, could yeah. you mention that, speak to that, and how that relates to uh, the, you know, the mobile economy? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, the nine forces, and I'll just sort of spell them out. The first is context. Um, which is basically uh, the idea that, you know, companies and institutions knowing what's going on in and around you. Um, the second one is location. And this is powerful, obviously, because location is, is so telling of, uh, you know, consumer intent. Uh, the third is time. Um, the time could be time of the day or, or day of the week or, or time of the month and, and so on. And all of this or even like, you know, where in your purchase cycle you are, what point in time. Um, are we talking about um, the fourth force is saliency, which is basically in this attention deficit and information overload economy. Um, how salient is your message for your consumers? Can do the right people basically get to see the right messages? Um, another one, the fifth one, is, and this is very interesting: crowdedness. And you know what I mean by that is, what is the extent of crowdedness in the immediate context of the person that you're trying to reach? Okay. So one of the very cool studies we had done uh, was looked at um, you know, sending people, you know, again, these highly curated offers, but looking at contexts where things are very crowded, like in subway trains or, or airports or bus stations versus when it's not as crowded. And what we had found is that as the level of crowdedness increases, people's propensity to redeem these marketing offers actually increases. Hmm. Uh, 
And it was largely driven by this notion that, you know, when people are surrounded by strangers that they're not aware of or they're not familiar with, you know, the mobile device becomes their escape. They immerse themselves, whether to listen to a song or read something on the device. And at that time, you have their undivided attention, you as the company. And at that time, if you can send them the really relevant targeted offer, bingo, you just got a jackpot. Um, so there's that, there's trajectory and social dynamics. Trajectory is the one that I talked about with the shopping mall, where you essentially, instead of the online world, you're essentially uh, looking at people's actual walking trajectory in the offline world. Um, and you combine that with a factor known as social dynamics, which basically says, you know, our behavior changes, even if you're at the same spot at the same time, it will depend on, are you alone or are you with friends or family or with a large group of people? And then uh, the last two, the last one is, uh, is weather. Um, turns out that weather actually changes how consumers behave. Obviously, you know, uh, our mood changes based on whether it's sunny or rainy or cloudy. And, and companies, again, can leverage those variations um, to reach out to us with specific offers. Mm. Um, so these are you know, the nine forces in, in, in sort of my book. And I you know, essentially spend a lot of time explaining lots of examples across the world about how companies have been able to leverage and harness these nine forces. So this mobile economy today, well, in the next three years, is going to be worth uh, $3.2 trillion. It's 4.5% of the world's GDP. Wow. And, and so each of these forces, I illustrate, you know, how... Uh, institutions and companies that can harness that $3.2 trillion. That's really fascinating, especially those those nine forces. So those are forces that in general, uh, no matter if it's mobile or in person or, you know, we're at home, um, they are, these are the things that impact us or affect how we buy in general. Right. And so, and so you're kind of going into how can businesses leverage these or at least know about them related to the mobile economy to tap into some of those trillions of dollars. That, that's correct. Yeah. And, and at the same time, like I say, it's a two-way process. So while companies are trying to tap into our data, um, you know, they also have to maintain that, that, that very thin line of, of trust that uh, distinguishes a concierge from a stalker. Yeah. And I think, you know, I actually just interviewed somebody the other day. I know the episodes will air at different times, but and we were talking about a little bit about this idea of trust and we're moving towards and consumers are really moving towards they want to know the company they buy things from, what that company stands for. Right. They're, they're buying more than just the product. And I truly believe that. And it's almost a way of leveling things out, because if you have somebody who's utilizing some um, perhaps some some poor practices to be that stalker in, at the end yeah. of the day that message will probably come out and people will be instantly turned off and we'll go somewhere else because we also have, as you mentioned, we have all of the choice. Yeah. No, I, I think, you know, I mean, that, that speaks to the heart of something, uh, you know, known as corporate social responsibility, right? Um, you know, how it's not just about, you know, how philanthropic you are as a corporation or, uh, you know, how super personalized and delightful your offers are. It's also about, you know, how those things are being done, right? I mean, what your procurement practices are, what your manufacturing practices are, absolutely. And I think more and more consumers, and this is where, you know, I, I sort of, I, I deeply admire millennials for, for, for this one reason, that not only are they 
you know, super aware of all these issues. They actually deeply care about it. And, you know, for all the flag that, mm-hmm. that they often get for, you know, whatever reasons, um, oh, well, you know, they are whining or lazy. I, you know, for me, none of that matters as much as the fact that these guys and, and girls, they are deeply immersed in, in caring about these issues. Um, and they're also very savvy. So, in fact, it's the best of both worlds. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they know how these, you know, how these messages are being curated and how the offers are coming. They can leverage it to benefit, but they also care about what the source are. Right. It's funny when you said that uh, corporate social responsibility, to me, there has never been a bigger oxymoron because, you know, <laughs> but, but to what you were saying, I think that consumers, especially young consumers, the new consumer, perhaps the mobile consumer, is changing that for the better. They're the ones forcing the social responsibility upon the corporations. And hopefully uh, we'll start to see that change. And what you're kind of saying is that change can happen in a way that works for both parties via mobile. Yeah, I really believe so. Yeah. And, and you know, I think all of the data and the projects and the studies um, that we have done really unequivocally demonstrates that. So let me ask you one more thing. Um, I know our time's running out, but what are you most excited for? And because I know you talk a lot about, you know, AI and wearables, yeah. uh, the Internet of Things. Tell me a little bit. Give me a little glimpse into the future about where we're going and what excites you. All right. So uh, what I'm really excited about, and this, again, might sound uh <laughs> you know, way over the top for many people is this integration that I feel is is absolutely going to happen between various devices at home uh, and the phone. So to me, the mobile phone is going to become this remote, uh, remote, uh, you know, a device, a remote button, basically using which I can remote control everything uh, from starting from my wearable devices, whether it's, uh, you know, my smartwatch or my Fitbit or Jawbone or whatever my preference are, to the smart television, to the Google Home and the Amazon Alexa and Echo, right? And, and as, as these devices essentially start talking to each other, there's going to be tremendous amount of, you know, data sharing and data, uh, new data being created. And I, towards the end of my book, I focus a lot on you know, how the next generation of forces are going to emerge beyond these nine forces. And a lot of them are going to be driven by, you know, um, these, 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 this data integration between our homes, our cars, um, our gadgets, and the phone. Okay? So an example of, uh, of this fascinating future is I'm watching television. Uh, let's say I'm watching some, some movie on Apple TV. And, you know, I have an Apple iPhone. I have my Apple smartwatch. Now it's Saturday night, you know, I've come back after hanging out with my friends. Uh, it's like, you know, two in the morning. Uh, but instead of crashing right away, I switch on my Apple TV. The Apple's going to, uh, the, the network is going to show me an ad. But at that time, don't show me an ad for, you know, Greg goes vodka. I just came back after a fantastic night out with my friends. Uh, so how would they know so? Well, you know, my Apple smartwatch is going to communicate in real time, my pulse rate, my breathing patterns, uh, whatever the biometric data they need to know. And so at that time, show me an ad for maybe a Caribbean beach vacation to soothe me down and sober me, <laughs> sober me down. So this is a future that uh, obviously excites me because, you know, this is something um, that I see coming. And uh, I actually truly believe that uh, this is going to be good in many ways for, for the society. And I, I give you a commercial example, but I'm also working a lot with, you know, personalized healthcare. 
where people are getting personalized messages on their smartphones and smartwatches, uh, reminding them to take medication. And you know, one of the things in the U.S. is we waste a lot of uh, money buying medicines that we don't end up consuming because you know we forget about things. And that's not just financially costly. Sometimes it has a actual you know uh, medical toll as well. And I, I see this ecosystem emerging uh, based on some of the work that we are doing where using information from your variable devices, we can send personalized reminders and, and messages to, to patients and say, look, it's time to do this, it's time to do that. So uh, that's the world that really excites me. Yeah, I mean, I got to admit, even just a year ago when I put my Nest thermostat in, in a very short amount of time, I go, how did I live without this? Like I'll be up in my room at night or something. I go, you know what? It's a little cold. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pop it up a degree or two, and it's just really funny. And and again, I am by no means an early adopter, so I know people that have wired things left and right. Right. And I, you know, I, I am excited about where it goes. Although we hope that trust factor holds on. Yes. <laughs> I think that's incredibly important. I think, you know, the winners, the companies will be the winners in the next decade are the ones who will essentially tread that line and, and maintain the high trust IQ. Absolutely. Well, Anindo, I really appreciate you being on the show. Again, the book is Tap Unlocking the Mobile Economy. And I want to see, is there anywhere else do you, do you write often on this topic or places we could and the listeners could learn more or follow along? Uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, I'm asked to write an opinion piece. I recently wrote one for the fortune on sort of uh, mobile banking and this on this cardless ATM economy. Uh, the fact that you can go to ATMs now and withdraw money without an actual card. So, I mean, sometimes, you know, I write these opinion pieces in, in the media. Um, but um, I guess probably the best way is just to, you know, I can refer my website, uh, my NYU Stern website, where I publish these articles. Okay, yeah, what is that? Do you, do you have that website available or? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if, if, uh, if someone were to find, just Google my name and, you know, the, I think the first link will be my uh, my homepage on the NYU Stern website. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'll go ahead and put a link to that at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Oh, sure. Thank you so much, Chris. It, was, it was a pleasure talking to you. All Thank right, you. thanks as well. I'll talk to you later. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Anindo Ghos. Anindo's book, Tap Unlocking the Mobile Economy, can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as your weekly reminder, if you do purchase through Amazon, please make sure you purchase through the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through that link comes at no extra cost to you and gives the show a nice little kickback. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review over there. We just hit our 500th rating and 240th review, which is absolutely amazing. But if we can get those reviews up to 500, I don't even know what I would do. I think I'd probably stop asking for ratings on the podcast. It only takes a couple minutes out of your day, so we'd greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review over at iTunes. All right, if you ever want to get in touch with the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Well, that's it for me this week. Stay tuned to all things Smart People Podcast. Make sure you sign up for the newsletter over at smartpeoplepodcast.com. We've got some great guests coming up, and we will see you all next episode. Next episode.